0: Welcome to Two Open Doors, the podcast that explores our power to open or close the doors of relationship with the important people in our lives. We hope you'll learn from and share your wisdom with our community. Thanks for joining us. The most common question that a sexologist or sex therapist encounters is, am I normal? It seems that most people are deeply concerned about how their sexual preferences, desires, and actions compare with those of others. That isn't too surprising given the social nature of our species. At the same time that we may seek to fit in with those around us, we also crave the freedom to follow our heart wherever it may lead us. In this episode, we'll explore the balance between those opposing desires, and we'll consider the upside and downside of conformity. As we've seen in many prior episodes, human sexuality and sensuality include a wide spectrum of practices and preferences. Basically, those are limited only by imagination and by the constraints of the norms in a given society. Sex is a form of adult play, and as such, it engages and explores all aspects of who we are. We humans are driven by curiosity. We love to explore, and the novel and unexpected can be a source of delight for us, as well as a potential source of fear. Sensual and sexual play engages all of our senses, including touch, sight, sound, and smell. It's immersive and compelling. The playground that sex offers is an arena in which we can learn much about ourselves, our connection with others, and our place in the world. Given the intense appeal of sex for most humans, then, why should there be any limitations on what terrain is available for exploration? Why should we ever have concerns over engaging in certain sensual or sexual acts or having certain sexual preferences? It seems likely that such concerns are rooted in how others might judge us. However independent we might be, we care about what others think of us. Again, from a social species perspective, it's important for us to fit into the herd. If something we say or do triggers rejection or revulsion in those around us, we might find ourselves in social isolation. The resulting aloneness and lack of support might put us at serious disadvantage. In earlier times, such isolation could threaten our very survival. The need for social approval is knit into our very fabric. It's enforced by our genetic programming. If social approval is indeed a guiding force in our lives, it's natural to consider what shapes that approval. That is, we should think about how the bounds of socially determined, proper and acceptable behavior are set. Who writes the rules for sex? Are there any universally valid and inflexible constraints? Definitive answers to such questions are elusive. There may be a very few broadly held limitations on sexual behavior, such as discouragement of incest. Perhaps those few limitations have deep historical or genetic roots, as revealed through long human experience. Even those few limitations stop short of being universal, though. Incest certainly occurs, and has been more common in the past. The bounds of accepted human sexual behavior vary by culture, and there seems to be considerable arbitrariness in what's in versus what's out. For example, some cultures are very proscriptive of gay sex, while others are less so. Similarly, some cultures actively encourage sex and the attendant childbearing at a very early age, while other cultures promote a later start to sexual expression. That's not to say, of course, that adolescents and even younger children don't engage in earlier sexual exploration. Our human sexual curiosity asserts itself from a very early age. It's just that society doesn't sanction or condone open sexual expression till later. Since there's little or no biological basis for sexual constraints, we're left to entertain a social basis for those constraints. In cultures in which the body and sexuality are viewed as bad or degrading, such as in cultures with heavy Judeo-Christian religious influence, it's to be expected that sex is heavily regulated by society. More specifically, social norms and mores, or rules of moral behavior, set tight bounds on what is deemed sexually permissible. Conversely, in cultures that hold a generally positive and accepting view of the human body and sexuality, such as in the Cook Islands, sex holds a preeminent place in the society. The members of such a society are taught about and then avidly participate in sexual activity without guilt. The members of a particular culture absorb that culture's perspectives on sex through what they are taught at home, through peer interactions, and from various institutions such as churches and schools. What we learn in that way then defines for us what is deemed normal, that is, socially acceptable and thus commonplace." Our internalized rulebook for sex may or may not reflect the reality of how people actualize their sexual lives. For example, in the US, monogamy is socially positioned as the cultural ideal and norm for long-term relationships, but in reality, cheating is very commonplace and serial monogamy is actually the most frequent form of committed relationship. What happens when a person's internal sexual desires and beliefs come into conflict with what is normal per social dictates? Unfortunately, that is a very frequent situation, with potentially serious implications. In some cases, when such a conflict comes to light, the host society enforces its views of normalcy, sometimes very harshly. As an example, in Saudi Arabia, Sharia law prescribes that a married man or woman caught in adultery be publicly stoned to death. As a somewhat less extreme example, those who violate social sexual norms may face public shunning or other forms of disapproval or rejection. That is the case for adulterers in Old-Order Amish culture. In addition to the possible socially enforced violations of normal sexual behavior, there are other more subtle but comparably damaging effects as well. Because we internalize the social rulebook for sexual normalcy, we can find ourselves enforcing those rules against ourselves. That can take the form of our feeling shame for our violation of sexual norms. In feeling shame, we condemn ourselves as a bad person. That is, we interpret our violation of a norm as proof that we are somehow fundamentally flawed or defective. Note that this is different from, and more psychologically damaging than, guilt, in which we see ourselves as a basically good person who committed a bad act. Whether perceived violations of sexual normalcy are punished through external social sanctions or through internal shame, both damage our self-image and both can reduce our quality of life. Social sexual norms can act as a blunt instrument that literally impacts our life for the worse. The preceding observations suggest that we should not blindly give in to the tyranny of socially prescribed sexual norms. How can we avoid that? The damaging effects of inappropriate sexual norms stem from false or biased beliefs and assumptions about human sexuality. If we can come to see our sexuality as a powerful but basically healthy force, we're well on our way to establishing healthy sexual norms for ourselves. We're neurologically wired to experience sex as rewarding and satisfying in all of the forms that appeal to us. That tells us that we can embrace sex as a basically wholesome thing. We need to couple that with acceptance of our sexual partner's personal boundaries and preferences, since they too have a right to safely enjoy sex. Respect for our partner is the basis for the principle of sexual consent. The combination of our personal sex positivity with respect for our partner's consent, or lack thereof, is a basis for defining a set of sexual rules that are right for us. We can close by returning to our opening theme the question that we should ask ourselves is not whether we are normal with respect to our sexual preferences and practices. We see now that such a question puts undue power over our personal happiness in the hands of external society. Rather, we should ask ourselves whether we're in touch with and accept our true sexual desires, and whether accepting those desires respects our partner's desires and boundaries. From such a perspective, there is no normal to artificially constrain our sexual expression. Instead, We give ourselves the freedom to open ourselves to the joy of sex through whatever path our playful imagination lays before us. To learn more about Two Open Doors and to engage with our community, I'd like to invite you to visit the Two Open Doors podcast, the Two Open Doors private Facebook group, and the Two Open Doors meetup group. I also invite you to contact me directly by writing to me at claude, C-L-A-U-D-E, at twoopendoors.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I'll use your inputs to guide my work on future blog posts and podcast episodes. Thanks for visiting to Open Doors.